0: Father God, thank you again for this day, and we're grateful for an opportunity to worship you this way, and um, uh, gosh, just that last song just uh, really hit me as far as just what you allowed your son to go through and what you even allow us to go through in order to purify us and perfect us and to uh, draw us into your presence in ways that we never could do on our own. So we thank you for that, we thank you that your word does that, and as we look into it this morning... um, May your spirit lead us and guide us in all knowledge and where we need to repent of things or where we need to just learn new things or put things into practice that we've known for years. We ask God that um, you would teach us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, there are certain events in life that really, and I really think are meant to elicit profound responses in us. For example, like go to a funeral. A funeral, obviously, um, it typically elicits memories. You know, you get these, these profound memories of the person uh, who had just died, or um, you have profound emotions like grief and sadness. These are things that come out of these kind of uh, events. Uh, concerts are, are like that, too. Concerts are, are sport- sporting events. They can elicit all sorts of things, everything from wild cheering to booing to all sorts of crazy things, and we, the well-known uh, agony of defeat, and what is that—the the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. All of these things that are elicited by uh, different events, and we're going to look at one of those today. Because last week, what we started doing, we started looking at the events that were surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus, and this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to actually not—we're going to look not only at the events surrounding the really the final few hours of his life on the cross, but we're going to look at the profound responses that are meant to be elicited in us because of these events, okay? Because so much of what happens in the Bible, I think we read it a lot of times and we think, oh, okay, whatever, but really so often what's in the Bible and the things we learn are meant to elicit responses in us. And what happens is we a lot of times fail to respond to things that we read in the Bible. And after time, we get used to just reading and not responding. So we're going to look at some of those things and just kind of talk about that a little bit this morning. So let's dive right on in. We're going to we're in chapter 27 of Matthew and verses 45 to 50. Okay, let's look at that first. Okay, it says this now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud with voice saying, Eli, Eli, I don't know how to pronounce that part. That is, my God, my God, why, has you, why have you forsaken me? Verse 47, and some of the bystanders heard and said, the man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And the other said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yield up his spirit. Interesting, that phrase, which I said, I wish I should have practiced it. Eli, Eli, lema. I don't know. It's, it's Aramaic. It's not even, it's not, well, it's not Hebrew. It's, it's an Aramaic. It's an interesting thing here. What Matthew was doing is he's not giving This the typical translated. We're not getting a typical translated Greek word for this. We're getting the actual. This is exactly the verbiage that came out of Jesus' mouth on the cross, because he was speaking in the Aramaic there. Um, so I'm not very good at my Aramaic. It's a little rusty. so. So the first thing, but notice the first thing that we see here is Matthew describes, the first one of these things that he describes is this supernatural darkness. Now, if you have your little sheets, if you want to take some notes, I I went crazy. I think I got like 12 of them this week. Uh, But we're going to look at, so this is so you can kind of document these things. So the first thing we see that Matthew describing is this supernatural darkness that covers over all the land from approximately noon till about 3 p.m., Okay, and number one on your notes there, Matthew's intent in describing this phenomena is for us to see this is more than simply a random meteorological event, but a dramatic and visible expression of God's displeasure of what was happening. This wasn't just some random thing. God was displeased with what was happening. There was something going on here that really had, had profound, profound impact on not only how he felt about it, but then how it showed itself in the world. So that's the first thing, is there's this darkness comes, this supernatural darkness. Next thing we see is number two, is we see is Jesus crying out in this loud voice to God as he is agonizing over the number two on your notes there, over the mental and spiritual torment that he was experiencing due to the intense sense of abandonment from his father that he's feeling as he takes on the sin of the world. So we know this. You guys have heard this before. Can imagine how painful and the torment and the torture Jesus was going through? But when he cries out, he didn't cry out, Oh, God, this hurts. Get rid of the pain. He cries out, Why have you forsaken me? There's this emotional torment and this mental torment, but also this sense of abandonment that Jesus is feeling here. Now, notice that what's happening here is Jesus is actually quoting scripture. He's actually quoting out of the Old Testament. He's quoting from the very beginning of an agonizing prayer of King David found in Psalm 22. And this is as David prays this prayer as he's describing not, describing not only experiencing all this mocking and this threatening that's coming from these, uh, his enemies and also this emotional and physical toll that it's taking on him. He's saying all that. He's, he's crying out to God. But what he is really crying out as well is how he feels God doesn't hear him. He's feeling that God is not hearing his cries and God doesn't seem to be caring about his suffering. Look at, let's look at that whole, just the first two verses. Look what it says in that prayer, the beginning of David's prayer. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night but i find no rest have you ever felt like that before be honest have you ever felt like that before you felt ever felt forsaken and abandoned by God. I mean, you're going through this extremely difficult and painful and distressful situation, and you wonder, how could a loving God, how could my loving Father stand by idly and let me suffer? How can He do that? Why does He do that? Is this a painful divorce. A death of a loved one, a loss of a job, or gnawing financial struggles, chronic pain, a depression that has it's got you in the darkest place that you ever imagined you could ever go. And you find yourself going, God, God, where are you? I think most of us can relate to that. At least some sense of feeling like, God, this just not ending. I get struggle, but week after week, month after month, I don't get it, God. What's going on? Here's what's going on. What Jesus is doing by quoting David is not only is he showing us very obviously that he relates to our suffering and anguish. I hope you see that. I hope you see that Jesus Our Savior understands what it's like to go through the deepest, darkest times of wondering what in the world. This is not just physically and emotionally painful, but to the deepest of my soul. But what he's also giving us, and number three on your notes here, he's giving us an example of how we are to respond to our suffering. Both David and Jesus show us that our response to the pain and distress in our lives should be first and foremost crying out to God, crying out to God, believing that He alone is merciful. And able to save. That's key. We talked about this last week. Not just crying out, ah! But crying out, believing that he alone is merciful and able to save. You know what we call this, what he did? Prayer. He prayed. David was praying You see, prayer, whether it's silent, whether it's audible, whether it's public, whether it's private, whether it's calm, whether it's "Ah!" it's whatever, is simply communicating with God. Number four on your notes there, it says, I said, it's the communication of the human soul with the one who created the soul. That's what prayer is. That's what communicating with God And so often we think that it has to be this solemn time or it has to look a certain way or it has to be a certain way. But I don't know about you, but to me, crying out is communicating. So really, this fits in the category of prayer. It really, really does. You see, David, to David, crying out wasn't just one of his options. It wasn't just one of the things. To him, it was his only real option because of what he knew to be true about who God is. Does that make sense? He, there was no way of him even thinking, oh, I need to cry out to God. Then I need to go do this. And then I need to go... Uh, that, those things might have been secondary. I need to talk to so-and-so. But first and foremost is, I need to cry out to God because I believe some things about him. I believe certain things to go about him. Look what David says as he goes on in verses three and five in Psalm twenty-two. He says, "Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. On in you." In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. You see, here's what's going on here. David knew and trusted. Remember we talked about, I said this very thing last week. He knew and trusted that everything that God had promised that is ultimately for his good, for God's glory and according to God's will, will happen this is what he believed about God that's why he could cry out to God the way he did I know that I know that I know that I know God I know who he is I know he's faithful I know he's made promises and he's going to keep those promises Professor Robert Godfrey writes this. He says, the real and inescapable problem of, problems of life in this fallen world should lead us to prayer. Prayer should lead us to remembering and meditation on the promises of God, both those fulfilled in the past and those that we trust will be fulfilled in the future. That's what prayer does. Number five on your notes, and here's the this is this is the really cool thing I think. Really cool thing about learning to cry out to God and remembering that He, what is true about Him, is that it ultimately brings us to a place of fervent praise. I know that's not what we're thinking in our head. Is I just want relief. I just want relief from this situation. But the reality is, the cool thing is, ultimately, as we cry out to God, believing He is who He says He is, it's going to lead to praise. And we see this in the second half of David's prayer in Psalm 22, as he recalls God's goodness and His faithfulness. Even in the midst of this ext- his extreme anguish, he, it's crazy. He can't begin to all of a sudden praise God listen, listen to what he says down later in, in chapter 22, I have up on the screen there it says, "I will tell of your name to my brothers, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him, all you offerings, off, offspring of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abandoned the affliction of the afflicted." And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried out to him. Now it's important to notice, David's circumstances have not changed. His circumstances are still the same. This is all in the same breath where he starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as he continues to do that, look where his prayer goes. Isn't that amazing? Here's this powerful truth, is when we cry out to God, when we're feeling forsaken or abandoned, believing the truth about who God is, God does something miraculous. Number six on your notes, though. Not only does he promise to be present in our situation, he changes our perspective. He makes a change in our perspective. What actually begins to be a priority is lifting up his holy name in praise. That's what going to him and crying out to him is meant to do. It's meant to change our whole perspective on how we think about our circumstances, how we think about God. Because the last thing I want to do a lot of times is praise God in the midst of my suffering or in the midst of feeling like, Where are you, God? I was just asking, where are you, God? Oh, praise you, God. But see how it works? As we come to this God, believing that he is who he says he is, and we continue to come to him, he's faithful. He's faithful to let us know how much he loves us. faithful to make sure that we're reminded how good he is. And it's a, the craziest thing is our morning. You've heard that thing. Our morning turns into what? Dancing. Dancing. Yeah. yeah, isn't that just wild isn't that just wild it's not our morning turns to dancing and praising not because all of a sudden oh gosh things are way better no our perspective changes because we've cried out to him I really believe that's what Jesus one of the things that Jesus is teaching us and one of those things that we can take away from this and our response is to this Okay. Now we see in part of this the last part of that passage we saw some bystanders. Um, they think he's calling out to Elijah and that Elijah's going to come and save him. And so they put give a sour wine on a sponge and they give it to Jesus to give him a little relief, but someone there says, "Wait, wait, wait, don't do that yet. He's calling to Elijah. Let's see if it really happens." That doesn't happen. And we see that he says Jesus cried out with a loud voice and it says he yields up or he gave up his life. Not too dramatic, is it? We I mean, think there's this, this dramatic scene there, but he just cries out again, probably the same things, and just gives up his spirit. Now, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go on, keep moving on here. We're gonna look and see how Matthew describes four more events that are a direct result of Jesus' death, which are ultimately meant to elicit a profound response in us. Okay? Some more things that we're going to see. We've seen the first thing already that elicits a response to cry us to cry out to God. Let's first look at these events, and then I, want to talk, then I will talk about the appropriate response. We'll just kind of go through them. Look at verse starting in verse 51. He says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So let's look through these. See, the first event that was a direct result of Jesus' death is this splitting or tearing of the curtain in the temple from top to bottom. Now this is this is supposed to be a specific symbol of what Jesus' death act, actually signifies or accomplishes. You see that in the temple there were um, in Jerusalem, it was the the temple was the center of religious life for the Jews there. And within the temple actually there were two different curtains or veils. Unfortunately, we're not, we don't know exactly which one. I looked and looked and looked and we're, we can't be sure of which of the veils, or which of the curtains was torn at this time that Matthew's referring to here. Because there was one that, was, that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, right? We know that. That was where it separated the place where the priest would go in once a year and he'd enter into God's presence for all of Israel and he'd make sacrifice for them and atonement, appeasement. For their sin. That was one curtain. But there was also another curtain that kind of basically separated the temple from the outer courts. But here's the reality. Whichever curtain it was, number seven on your notes, or whatever curtain it was, its tearing suggests that as Jesus dies, the authority of the old temple-focused way of relating to God is now transferred to the work of Jesus by what he accomplishes on the cross and his upcoming resurrection. The reality is, what that symbolizes, we now have unlimited, unobstructed access to God. I want you to let that sink in just for a second. Unlimited, unobstructed access to the God of the universe. I think we take that in two ways. This is a side note. Either we're in awe of that, and that just makes us go, oh my gosh, the God of the universe. Or we think, oh yeah, yeah, that's no problem. I get to to talk to my homie upstairs. And we just really, you know, take that for granted. And so we don't necessarily go to him with our deepest needs and our deepest struggles, because we, we end up, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, that kind of thing. I want to encourage us and challenge us all to see that this torn curtain here and what it represents of now not having to go through a priest, not having to go through somebody else to take care of my spiritual life and all that, take care of my, all that, we don't, none of that. It's right to the throne of God. Just a, remember, just a reminder this morning, my brothers and sisters in Christ. How amazing that is! How amazing it is! Okay, in speaking of the significance, I just want—I can't help but how powerful this is. In um, speaking of the significance of what Jesus did here, the writer of Hebrews says this. In Hebrews ten, chapter ten, it says this. Therefore, brothers, since and sisters, based by the way. conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we enter God's presence not going, oh, what should I do? We, and believe, we enter God's present right, presence righteous. That's got to blow our minds. We don't, enter, we don't have to cower and, and, God, you know my path. You know what I just did. You know my, oh, you know, no. We enter the presence of the throne room of God as clean and righteous and holy because of Jesus. Because of what he did. Why then do we spend so much time and we worry so much about being trying to clean up ourselves? Yes, we need to do the effort of trying to be the best we can be, allowing God to do that. But we need to stop allowing our sense of guilt and shame from causing us to readily run to our Father who loves us. And remember how He sees us. So that's the first event. Second event, and these are these we'll go through real quicker. Uh, the second event is the direct result of Jesus' death is this earthquake and the splitting of rocks. Number eight says it says the earthquake is a biblical symbol of God's mighty intervention in the in- intervention in the affairs of the world, especially. In judgment. What this is meant to do, this whole earthquake situation, this is meant to, this is meant to signify that something supernatural, that supernatural events and, and great significance is taking place. This is no small thing. There, the earth has to respond, there has to be some kind of response. This is huge. So the earth shakes, rocks, split. The third extraordinary event. Is the opening of the tombs and, and the bodies of many godly people who have died are raised to life, and then after Jesus' resurrection appear to many? Is this the weirdest thing? How, that is wild, isn't it? And we, and we get no explanation of this, really. You know Really, this is probably meant to be seen more symbolic than to try to fully figure out what does this mean? Number nine your notes there. It's, not to, it's meant to be seen that Jesus' death. Not just his resurrection is key to the new life which is now made available to all of us. His death was so significant, Jesus, when he gave up his life and died, it was so huge, it was so powerful, people actually came alive. that were dead. I mean we don't know who they were. Matthew doesn't say, what, what were they? Moses? Were they? I mean, <laughs> we don't know who they were, and what were they doing for two days until Jesus rose again? Well, no, this wants us to show this was powerful. It wasn't just his rising from the dead. His death was a monumental event, and we need to remember that. Okay, fourth event that is the direct result of Jesus' death we see is the response of the soldiers. The response of these soldiers that were with with him there, that were guarding him. Matthew writes that after experiencing this earthquake and witnessing all that had transpired between Jesus, remember, they had been there, they had seen the mocking, they had seen all that stuff going on, all that had happened to him, and they saw Jesus cry out to God. What happens? They're filled with what? They're filled with this awe, or literally they're filled with this, this holy terror is what fills them. And what that does, it results in their belief in who Jesus truly is. That's amazing. They see all these things. These guys have seen enough to have a radical change of heart. Number 10, I believe that Matthew includes this scene in order to remind his primarily Jewish readers and us of the inclusivity of the gospel. The inclusivity of the gospel. The invitation to be a part of a church of church Jesus is establishing is available to all, to everyone. And I think we all know this. We all think we know this, but think about it. It is available to that person that you just have such a hard time with and you just go, it's available to them. It's available to the mockers. It's available to those out there that you think that would be a little... Have you ever had that experience before? You find out someone gets saved and you go, that would have been the last person I would have thought. They they hated God. And what this is to show us, it's available to everyone. Mockers, haters, the most reviled. I love hearing stories about Jesus doing mighty work in people's lives that are just so... In our minds, we would think their lives are just so trashed and their lives are so messed up. And then we watch do this, we watch God do this transformation. I just love those stories. I love the stories of God going, you know, revivals happening in prisons and in other parts of the world where people are being oppressed and there's and there's and all sorts of abuses. And then in the midst of that. God saves people. I know I told you guys to read this book, and if you haven't yet, shame on you. I'm kidding. Um, is uh, Bob Goff's book one of Bob Goff's books? Where is it? Is it um, Kenny, is it the one where he talks about the the witch doctors? Is that the second one? It's an amazing story in his second in the other book. Um, Everybody always and he talks about how. These witch doctors were abducting children and making sacrifices with them. and just It was just abhorrent and he was a lawyer so he helped them convict these guys. And then he realized God wanted him to do more than that. He wanted to minister to these guys. Long story short, they have a school, a training school for witch doctors where witch, witch doctors learn to learn all the skills of life but also hear the gospel. And, and these witch doctors who were abducting children and killing them and sacrificing them, are coming to Jesus. Isn't that just awesome? That is just absolutely amazing. And that's what we're seeing here. So if Jesus models for us the importance of crying out to God when we're feeling forsaken by God, number 11 on your notes, these events which we just looked at, which are a direct result of Jesus' death, are meant to cause us to respond with adamant faith. With adamant faith. You see, not only do these events have deep theological and supernatural implications, we see that they're part of the cause of this once antagonistic people towards God to now believe in Him. And here's what I really, here's what my takeaway from this section really has been is that this is a great reminder to us that really desire to have a, a vibrant walk with Jesus. To be reminding ourselves of all the extraordinary things that Jesus, things that, that, that are a direct result of Jesus' death. Can, when we think about how, what amazing things happened because of that he died for me, this is the kind of thing that can cause us to want to go, I want to believe more. The power that is in that, the power that's in the death of Jesus, I want that. I want, I want to have that in my life. And these are just a couple of the things that happened. All right, let's come towards the end here. Lastly, Matthew includes another little important, little couple verses here that his last group of people in this last scene. Look at verses 55 and 56. He says, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and their mother of the, sons, the mother of the sons of Je- Zebedee. So we see here that there were many women who were following Jesus that were a, a part of this as well. And a couple of them are specifically mentioned here. Yet all of these women, though, were most likely ministering to Jesus and providing Him throughout His ministry. And they're providing for Him out of their own resources. They were helping Him to do His ministry. And you, Remember, women were viewed back then basically as property. They weren't even considered a credible witness in court. You know that? And ironically, next week we're going to look at the fact that who were the first witnesses to (laughs) Jesus' resurrection? Women. I love it. I love that. We're going to see that. We're going to look at that next week. But these, these guys were providing that, that practical support for him. And what this says is, is that the role of those who are viewed by society as weak and inconsequential are really of utmost importance to the work of spreading the gospel. In that day, women were nothing, but they get mentioned here as a part of this massively important scene of Jesus dying on the cross. There were women there. And these were the women that were supporting Jesus. These are the women that really helped Jesus get to this point. Can you imagine hearing that, reading that back then? We think, of course women need to be included. It's all about inclusion. Back then, that would have been radical for them to read that. Look what the apostle wrote to the church in Corinth. He says, "...for consider your calling, brothers." Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And lastly, number 12 on your notes there. No matter what shortcomings you believe you have, and being a woman is not one of them, that's not what we're saying here. No matter what they are, know that God desires to give you the courage to use you in profound ways for his mission of making disciples. And I can already hear some of you in your head saying, nah, yeah, not me. Ah, not me is not true. It is not true at all. God wants you. We were just talking about this before the service started, about how weak and vulnerable and oftentimes those of us that get up here feel being used by God, and we just go, it is a testament to God using the weak and and the not powerful to do great things. And that is what is meant for every single one of us. Every believer in this room I hope you believe that. I hope you believe that about yourself. God wants to use you. He wants to use you, and we're going to look at that in two weeks when we finish, finally, this book of Matthew. We're going to look at the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is not for those that went to seminary. The Great Commission is not for the extroverts. The Great Commission of making disciples of all nations is not for those who feel adequate enough. Actually, I would beg to differ. I would say it's probably for those that feel absolutely helpless and unable to do it. Because look at that last part of that verse. It said, that so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. So let me encourage you, every single one of you that calls yourself a follower of Jesus, He wants to use you in mighty ways but you don't know know my situation. I don't have to know. Word says it. The Bible says it. So the reality is that the events surrounding Jesus' death are meant to elicit profound, profound responses in us. I just want to end by asking you, how might he be asking you to respond? How might he be asking you to respond to his death? A couple questions for y'all. Mix it up for a few minutes here. First question: I want to talk to you. Let's talk a little bit about what are some things that keeps that keeps that keep people from crying out to God when feeling forsaken or abandoned by Him. What are is there? what are some things that keep? Thank you. People from crying out to God when feeling forsaken or abandoned by Him, and what can help or motivate us to do so? What do you think? Think about it for a sec. Shame. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't deserve to cry out to him. Yeah. Really good. What else? What else keeps us from crying, people from crying out to God when feeling forsaken by him? Yeah. Fear. Great. Yeah. What? There's another one over here. I heard a, God. what's that? God. Yeah. Fear, blaming God. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like I am so far down that nasty rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Pride. Whew. That that wasn't stereo there. <laughs> For sure. What can help us what can help or motivate us to do so? What can help or motivate us to, to go to God and cry out to him, believing he is who he says he is? What can motivate us? Except, what do you mean yeah, acceptance? Yeah, good. Okay. Prayer? Yeah. What else? That was a good. The of where can I go but to the Lord. Yeah. Where else am I gonna go? Right. Remember the disciples? You know, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Yeah, where else would we go? I think for me what I've been learning about in this area is. Really learn, trying to help myself remember the truth about who God is. Because I think that's one of the major tactics of the enemy, is to get us to forget who God is and what he is like. Forget his promises. That's for, I know for me that's really help, super helpful. And I've found that really going to Scripture is the place I can do that the most. Listening to worship music. Reading the Psalms. You want to know what God is like? You want to know what it looks like to go to God? You want some examples of going to God, praising Him, ticked off at Him, (laughs) afraid, feeling shame? You want some good examples? Read the Psalms. Really, really helpful. Okay, second question. Good answers, good answers. Um, How can reminding ourselves of the extraordinary events surrounding Jesus' death help us to remain, maintain a vibrant walk with Him? How can reminding ourselves actually help us to maintain a vibrant walk. How do you think being aware of the sacrifice and yeah. fully like embracing it? Yes, ex- And that's almost what I one of my answers is reminding myself of the power and the significance of what happened at that death. Gotta keep in remember? Transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. It's huge how we think we got to be thinking. So, good. Good answer. Any, anything else on that one? It, it helps me to think about like, positive and negative examples. So, do I want to be like this kind of person at the cross? Right right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah? Well, sometimes I like to try to be independent and fix it myself. By the way, you're the only one that does that. I just wanted you to know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah: that I can't fix Exactly. Totally. Who are we to negate that amazing, powerful act of his death, mm. which is exactly what we're doing when we take charge mm. when I take charge? Mm. That's exactly. Yeah, good. Good. All right, last one. One more. What are some truths Christians can tell themselves when they feel unimportant or incapable of having an impact for the kingdom? What are some things we can tell ourselves? In our minds, when we feel like, ah, "Who am I to share my faith?" Yeah. Um, we have love. Yes, great one, Veronica. That's too. I'm, <laughs> I'm loved no matter what. Whether I fall on my face doing this or whatever, I'm totally loved. Great answer. Yeah. What else? What are some things we can tell ourselves? I had to do that last week about something. I just felt like, oh, I can't do this. And then that's the exact verse that the Spirit gave me. I can do all things. I can't do this, but I can do all things. Yeah. Great one, Paul. What else? Anything else? These are great. Yeah. Oh. That God has created for good works. I think that's an Is that I don't know. That's a good question. Don't make me feel like the dumb pastor. Come <laughs> on. Yeah, exact, exactly. He's created us for that. Yeah, we were made for that reason. But we also look and I "No, that person was made more for that reason." That's ludicrous. That's the enemy whispering in our ear. Yeah, Robin. When Christ was resurrected, he uh, when he came back or when he was resurrected, he gave gifts to all, all men so that we could be the praise to his glory. Yeah. Every single believer has at least one spiritual gift exactly and for the purpose of building up the body of Christ that, that's everybody and you, so you need to know what yours is. you need to let people help you figure out what that is because we're all we all got we're all part of it we're all in this together all right let's pray. Father God thank you again for your your tremendous word and, and what it teaches us what it shows us thank you that we are able to look to, the, look to the truth of your powerful word to transform our lives, to transform our hearts and our minds. God, thank you so much for that. I pray, God, that as, as we think about what you did on the cross, what you went through, all that surrounding, things that surround your death, that this would draw us closer to you, cause us to feel free to run to you, to cry out to you, to trust you more, to lean into you, because we are completely loved, And you give us the strength and the power to do what you've asked us to do, Father. Gosh, you're you're so good. So, so good. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.